In the book of Exodus, the Israelites are delivered from Egyptian captivity by the hand of God. And in the book of Joshua, the Israelites enter the promised land that they were delivered out of Egypt to go and receive. They achieved victories in the promised land by the power and hand of God. It worked for their good. Delivered out of captivity, inheriting the land of promise. But it is not that simple. (laughs) The story of Israel was not Exodus, inheritance. Deliverance and inheritance summarize part of the story. It is not the whole story. The book of Numbers is necessary to tell us how the Israelites made it from Mount Sinai to the eastern side of the Jordan River, where we still find them in Deuteronomy, and from which they will enter the promised land across the Jordan River. They arrive at that place in Numbers. So Numbers is, in many cases, a traveling book. They don't start traveling till chapter 10, but they will begin traveling. Because the Israelites will have to conquest the land when they arrive, they need warriors. There will be battles. And so a census was taken in Numbers 1. In order to determine how many fighting men from age 20 upward there were. The counting of people is why the book is called Numbers. It is a lot, it's about a lot more than just counting, but uh, this is the opening chapter of the book in Numbers 1 that tells us of a census that took place. There is a second one before the book ends. In Numbers 26, a second census of fighting men takes place. And you should wonder, why are there two? And the sad answer is that the people we count in Numbers 1 will rebel against the Lord as part of an older generation wanting to go back to Egypt, demanding a leader other than Moses to take them there. And they are forbidden by God to enter the promised land. And they will wander for 40 years. That is their destiny. By the time the reader arrives in Numbers 26, a new counting of warriors is necessary because the whole nation of Israel has undergone a kind of death and resurrection in the promised land. The people who were not counted in Numbers 1 as 20 and up have now grown up in the promised land and they, in Numbers 26, are a different people. A different sum is given, in fact, in Numbers 26. The younger generation is risen up and they will go into the land for battle, but they will not be the people of Numbers 1. There are, there are ways we can think of Numbers as a book that contains many tragedies. The faithfulness of God is clear, but the unfaithfulness of the people abounds. There are some stories in Numbers that just leave your mouth hanging open where you are aghast at the things that they are saying. And you think, really? The Exodus people... The people who walk through walls of standing water. These are the things they're saying to Moses and to the Lord. Do they not fear God? By the time you get to Numbers 26, indeed, a new counting of warriors was necessary because Numbers is a traveling book where the Israel that left Sinai is a different kind of Israel by the end. They are at Sinai for 11 months when they arrive in Exodus. You may remember this from a few weeks ago when we began our chapter together. 
Exodus 19, they come to Sinai and they're there for a while. Over 50 Bible chapters unfold. The rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, 10 chapters of Numbers. They're all at one spot at the bottom of a mountain. In 11 months, that's a short amount of time considering how long just a few chapters of Genesis can be on a timetable. How many centuries and even millennia can unfold from Genesis 1 through Genesis 25, say. The first half of Genesis covers an extraordinary amount of time. And Exodus 19 through Numbers 10 covers 11 months. And the reason we want to emphasize that is because it tells us how defining the Sinai experience was. Two big takeaways from Mount Sinai. Number one, they received commandments and instructions. This was a place where they came to know what God is like and what it is like to walk before the living God. What are the sort of people they're called to be? What will it mean to approach this God who has redeemed them? So they receive a whole host of commandments and instructions. But secondly, a major takeaway from Mount Sinai is the building of the tent of meeting. This is called the tabernacle. Same idea. Tabernacle or tent of meeting. The wooden structure overlaid with various linens and curtains that would be set up when they arrived and taken down when they were ready to leave a particular place of encampment. On the board tonight, I've got the tabernacle's cubed room called the most holy place, the larger room called the holy place. This is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is not one of those rooms. The tabernacle is what you call the whole of that structure. So the tabernacle has two rooms, a larger one and a smaller one. The tabernacle also has a courtyard, which is not represented here. But the tabernacle would be surrounded by the Israelites. The opening chapters of Numbers address a number of, um, no pun intended, address a number of important preparation activities. First, in Numbers 1, the census of warriors. And in Numbers chapter 2, the arrangement of the Israelite camp. In Numbers 1, they counted the tribal warriors from every tribe but Levi. The reason that doesn't leave them with only 11 tribes is because the tribe of Joseph is divided by Joseph's children. His children Ephraim and Manasseh become those two tribes to replace Levi's absence. Now, it's not because Levi did something wrong that none of his tribal descendants were included in the warrior census. It's because the priests would come from Levi's tribe and they had tabernacle responsibilities, the maintaining of the vessels and furnishings of the tabernacle, so they were not among the Israelite warring tribes. In chapter 2, we come tonight to a series of instructions about the arrangement of the camp. This is not a normal Bible chapter in terms of the kind of content you seek when you need to be encouraged or you're trying to establish a particular doctrinal teaching. You're probably not going to Numbers 2. I've been in pastoral ministry a long time. No one's ever said, you wouldn't believe the week I was having and then I happened upon Numbers chapter 2. Left so encouraged in my walk with the Lord. Now, I'm saying this not to diminish the content of numbers in, mu- as, in as much as for me to say this is not a normal kind of chapter we would typically deal with. As Bible readers, we have to learn what to do with chapters like this. 
And the answer is not skip it. <laughs> Just keep going. Just keep flipping. No, that is not what we want to do. The answer is to reflect on what is here and see what there is to learn. We can be impatient readers, I'm afraid. I can be that way. I don't mean to just project that on all of you, but I know the kind of reader I can be. We can be impatient readers, and we might even haphazardly decide ahead of time what's worth studying and what's not. Well, let's not do that with any of the chapters of God's Word. Let's instead recognize that there is a benefit to progressing, progressing through Bible chapters together, and that is coming upon verses like this where we say, what do we do with a series of instructions about Israel's tribal arrangement around the tabernacle? It's not a narrative of the Gospels. It's not a poem from Psalms. It's not a vision from a prophet. It's instructions about how to arrange the tribes. The reason for this is because the Israelites are traveling toward the promised land, and they're going to march And as they travel, they're not doing this in a day. They're going to travel from Sinai and they're going to have to stop. And one of the things they're going to be bringing with them is the portable wooden tabernacle. And therefore, Numbers 2 and even some verses after Numbers 2 are going to address what it will be like for these people who must travel and who must travel with the tabernacle. How will they arrange themselves when they stop? And even while they march, when they leave, it's going to be in Numbers chapter 10 and they're going to camp along the way. We can think of this arrangement tonight as one way of representing the Israelite encampment. You could you could represent it with pictures and other other uh, ways. But here with some writing on the board and with a smaller and larger square and rectangle, here is the tabernacle with an arrangement of tribes. This is the Israelite encampment. And as they travel, they are going to be organized by God. They're not saying, all right, everybody get up and get going. You know, early birds gets the worm. Somebody uh, lead us out. They're going to march in a particular order and they're organized in a specific fashion. God is ordering the camp in Numbers 1. One way that's helpful for my mind to think about this is to remind myself of Genesis 1 and 2, where God separated um, the heavens, where God brought land from the waters, where the Lord formed and filled the aspects of creation that he brought into existence. And in that ordered account of God who is dividing and filling and ordering and organizing, this God is the living God of the Israelites, ordering and organizing and forming their camp. He's drawing lines. He's establishing boundaries. Think of Numbers chapter 2 that way. Here is God establishing, just like he placed stars and sun and planets in orbits, saying, here's the encampment and here's who goes where. Now, this chapter is going to move in a clockwise fashion. It's going to start on the east and then move to the south and then move to the west and then move to the north. And starting on the east matters. When we rattle off compass directions, we might think of north, south, east, and west. I think of directions on the compass always referring, first of all, to north. Beginning with the east makes a point that we're going to try to think on in just a bit. Each of these groups 
I have one name in the four groups that's in all caps. This is intentional. On the eastern side, it's Judah. On the southern side, Reuben. On the western side, Ephraim. And on the northern side, Dan. These in caps are the prominent, standard-bearing tribes of that side. So let's look together at the opening instructions to the arrangements and follow the clockwise pattern, and let's see what we can see in this Bible chapter. Chapter 2-1 and verse 2 as well. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. There's a few things we can glean from this. First of all, every side of the tabernacle will be occupied. This will be a surrounded tent. This is different from, let's say, Mount Sinai, when the glory of God descended at the top of the mountain, and no one was to even be on the mountain except those designated, and especially Moses, who would go to the very top. The Israelites weren't even to let their beasts come on the mountain lest they die. So the idea of drawing near to the presence of God would be a shocking thing now on display in the tabernacle where the tabernacle will be surrounded by Israelites. And I also want us to notice here that they are to camp by their standard, the banners of their father's houses. Those probably refer to two different things. Each of the tribes would have what you might call these days some kind of flag or banner with some kind of symbol on it. Now, I don't think you can demonstrate textually with any strong reliability what the 12 signs on such banners or flags would be. So in other words, I don't know what the banner of Asher's household would have on its flag or standard, but you might think of it in terms of a family crest, some kind of emblem or symbol that was unique. It would designate that tribe. This side, like on the eastern side, Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun, they would encamp under Judah's banner while all having their individual fathers' houses of their tribes uh, signaled by flags as well. There is a larger corporate as well as individual identity going on here. And I find that helpful to reflect on because these Israelites belonged. They weren't like individual Israelites just doing their own thing. They were meant to belong corporately So that they were both believers in Yahweh, each participants in the covenant life of the community, but they belonged to God who had delivered the people and was defining what the people were to be like. They had both corporate and individual elements of understanding who they were, who they were individually before God and corporately. And they were to dwell under the standard of the particular prominent tribe that's in all caps here. Judah, and then Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan. Let's look at the east together. In verse 3, those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab. That name was in Numbers 1. He was helping count people from Judah's tribe. So that name is the same. They will camp on that side under the standard or banner of Judah. Not because their own individual tribal signals and banners didn't matter anymore, 
but because there was a prominence given to one of those tribes on each side. And it tells us in verse 4, his company, as listed, being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar, being Nethanel, the son of Zuar. His company, as listed, being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun, being Eliab, the son of Helon. His company, as listed, being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. Now this eastern side allows us to notice a few things. The individual numbers are given of these tribes, of the tribal warriors. But at the end, it says in verse 9, all those listed of the camp of Judah. So you can say two things about this side you can see that they, ha- they can be broken down according to tribes, but that side encamps under the banner of Judah. Judah is given prominence. I've also put tribes on either side of Judah, just like on each of the other sides too. The one in caps is in the middle. And this is because when people are writing commentaries on numbers, and trying to analyze in the grammar of the original language how this seems to work out, it looks as if in the original language, in verse 5, those to camp next to him are the other two tribes. And if Judah is first and then Issachar, Zebulun is not camping next to Judah. So the next language, that's the key here. It's to envision, I think, The other tribes on either side of this banner-bearing, standard-bearing tribe. Judah probably occupied then a central place. And the other two tribes on either side. So that they could both be next, like quite literally next to Judah. Now Judah is prominent in the Old Testament because Judah will be the tribe of the royal seed. Genesis 49 verse 10 prepares us for this. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is the first tribe mentioned, though he was not the firstborn of Jacob's sons. This is not birth order. Judah was the fourthborn of Leah. But Judah is the tribe of the royal seed and is given prominence, not only because of being named first, but secondly being placed on the eastern side. Why would being on the east matter? Well, to rewind, we are finding ourselves before Exodus in the book of Genesis where Eden had two image bearers exiled to the east and a cherubim with flaming sword blocking re-entry so that a picture of the east is a picture of entering in to dwell and commune with God. The tabernacle is entered by the east. The temple will be entered by the east. The promised land will be entered across the Jordan at the east. These eastern emphases exist because God has come to dwell with sinners and invite them to come near to him. And the eastern emphasis is a way of saying, though we are no longer in Eden, draw near to me. And the priests will enter 
the eastern side of the holy place. The high priest on the day of atonement will enter the most holy place at the east through the veil that separates him from the Ark of the Covenant. So I'm not overemphasizing east as if it's just significant here. The reason it's significant here is how it was significant already. And that gives a layer of meaning to what we find. So these Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, anything that we can notice about these, they were all sons of Leah. These are not all of the sons of Leah, but they were all sons of Leah. Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun. Let's go clockwise now to the south. In verse 10, on the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Elizer, the son of Shadur. His company, as listed, being 46,500. And again, those names and numbers are from chapter 1. Verse 12, and those to camp next to him shall be of the tribe of Simeon. The chief of the people of Simeon being Shelmiel, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. His company, as listed, being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad. The chief of the people of Gad being Eliasaph, the son of Ruel. His company, as listed, being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. The same observations matter then. There is a prominent tribe, Reuben in this case, and next to him will belong the other two. Reuben and Simeon are children of Leah. Gad is a child of Leah's servant whom Jacob married, the servant named Zilpah. In other words, the eastern and southern names are children of Leah or Leah's maidservant whom Jacob married. Now, the very end of verse 16 says, they shall set out second. What does that refer to? Well, remember, though the Israelites will be encamped, they're going to be marching when it's time to move. And they cannot march in just any order. Rather, the eastern side will set out and lead the entire nation of Israel as they travel. Second will be the southern side of the encampment. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. They will set out second. Notice in verse 17... An unexpected interruption in the pattern. We've seen the eastern side. We've seen the southern side. We're prepared for the western side because we know what's coming next. But in verse 17, Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps as they camp, so they shall set out, each in position standard by standard. Okay, we're not dealing with the western side yet. All of a sudden we realize The tabernacle maintainers, those who are going to tear down and travel with the tabernacle, they come next in the march. The eastern side will move out. The southern side will move out. Western side, hold your position. Next will be the Levites. The Levites will move with the tabernacle furnishings. That's what it means when it says, the tent of meeting shall set out. Listen, friends, it doesn't move by itself. Even though it's filled with the glory of God, it's got to be carried. Okay, they're going to have to carry that thing. They're going to have to take off the curtains. They're going to have to fold things up. They're going to be draping the golden instruments and vessels, and they're going to be carrying it. 
and the Levites are going to be between the first two encampments. In other words, two movements, the Levites, and then the last two movements. They're going to be surrounded by the Israelite tribes before and behind. The tabernacle isn't the head of the line. The tabernacle is not the caboose, but right in the middle. There's something fitting here. The tabernacle's in the middle of the camp, and it's in the middle of the march. It's in the middle of the camp, and it's in the middle of the march. And now we go back in verse 18 to what we would have expected. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies. The chief of the people of Ephraim, being Elishama, the son of Amahud, his company, as listed, being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh, being Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, his company, as listed, being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin. The chief of the people of Benjamin being Abadan, the son of Gideoni, his company as listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim, which is a reference to the whole western side, by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. Now, who are these as children? Well, Rachel has two children. Rachel has Joseph and Benjamin. Now, what's interesting about this, Joseph has two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Let's look at which we've got here on the western side. We've got Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, all immediate or eventual descendants of Rachel. So on the eastern and southern sides, we can associate things with Leah or Leah's maidservant. On the western side, it's Rachel's children or children's children. And then we find ourselves in the north. The last section here in verse 25, on the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies. The chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. Listen, y'all, I'm doing my best with these names. And even as I'm looking through this, I feel like I'm sweating trying to pronounce them. All right. His company as listed being 62,700 and those to camp next to him. Shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher, being Pagiel, the son of Akron, his company, as listed, being 41,500. And then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali, being Ahira, the son of Inan, his company, as listed, being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan, where 157,600, they shall set out last, standard by standard. It was to be this way. Every time. If they were traveling later in the book of Numbers from Sinai to the promised land, they didn't draw straws to see who'd go out first this time. This is the order. The God who separated the heavens from the waters, who brought land from the waters, who drew boundaries and made distinctions. He's doing that among the Israelites, saying, here are the people and here is the order. This is the way it shall be. And the people in the middle of the camp shall be in the middle of the march, the Levites with the tabernacle. The last part of the chapter is a summary of sorts. It gives the total number as well as the obedience of the people. These are the people of Israel as listed by their father's houses. 
All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out each one in his clan, according to his father's house. Now, when you look at that summary, this is a way of preparing the reader who's not yet read of Israel leaving Sinai. This is the way it will be, and the people of Israel numbered them accordingly. The passage begins in verses 1 and 2 with the command of God. These were God's words and command to Moses and Aaron. The chapter ends with the obedience of Israel. Chapter 1 was the same way. Chapter 1 opened with a command of God, take a census of the people, 20 years old and upward, who are males for the fighting. And there was obedience. That's a nice rhythm to start out the book of Numbers with. It will not be a rhythm that stays for long, but it is a nice rhythm that the Lord gives commands and instructions and the people obey. The book of Numbers will not sustain that kind of rhythm. The people will have weariness and murmuring and rebellion in short order. The tribes in the north here, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Dan and Naphtali are sons of Rachel's servant Bilhah, whom Jacob married. Asher is Jacob's son through Leah's servant Zilpah. So the northern, the northern tribes here, the northern side tribes, are all sons of Jacob through the maidservants of Leah and Rachel. So there are some interesting features with how they tie to particular wives or the servants of those wives. The eastern emphasis and prominence of Judah would be difficult to overstate because of how important the east is and how the royal tribe of Judah features later in the Old Testament. <clears throat> For example, that's the tribe of David and ultimately the tribe of Jesus. Now, while there's no clear symbol and picture for each of these tribes laid out textually in the Old Testament, there are some interesting observations from rabbis that you can see in their writings that <clears throat> there are some symbols later identified in Ezekiel and in Revelation that tie to the prominent ones. Here's the suggestion, and I quote, According to rabbinic tradition, the standard of Judah or the banner of Judah bore the figure of a lion. And the standard or banner of Reuben, the likeness of a man or a man's head. The standard of Ephraim or banner of Ephraim, the figure of an ox. And then Dan, the figure of an eagle. The reason this is interesting to read in the rabbinical writings is because when you turn to the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, there are living creatures that are present in the very colorful and visionary language of Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel 1.10 <clears throat> speaks of one with a human face, one with the face of a lion, the other the face of an ox, and one the face of an eagle which all seem to be 
ways, according to the rabbis, of alluding to these prominent tribal heads. One way this is used in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4, we're told that around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones, 24 elders clothed in white garments. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first, like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third, the face of a man. The fourth, a living creature like an eagle in flight. And they all have six wings. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now what's intriguing to me as an interpreter about Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, and especially the language in Revelation 4, 7 and following, is when you look back in Numbers 2, the arrangement here does speak of the holiness of God in its central placement, the eastern entrance, the mediating Levitical priests who would carry the tent in the middle of the march and who would be within this circle of encampment tribes right around the tabernacle, though I didn't represent it up here this week. There is something of the holiness of God that is to be kept prominently on the mind of the Israelites. And it's clear in Ezekiel 1's vision, and it's abundantly, explicitly expressed in Revelation 4. To speak of something on all sides with something majestic in the center is both royal and holy. Both royal and holy. Archaeologists have discovered that the Egyptian army under Ramses II from the 13th century BC camped around the royal tent, leaving it in the middle. Noting that in the ancient world, one of the things you could do as an army is surround what you demonstrated or symbolized to be your king. And if I may, this ancient understanding, not only true for the Egyptians, but even earlier for the Israelites in the 1400s BC, this suggests both royal and holy connotations here. God is at the center of the camp because Yahweh is king of Israel. And the Levites are to guard and maintain the tabernacle and march in the middle because Yahweh is holy. We can conclude some doctrinal things, surprisingly, from Numbers 2. We can say with the arrangement of the tribes that Yahweh is the holy king of the Israelites. He's a king who is holy, holy, holy. He dwells with them. Seems unthinkable. Here is the God of Sinai, the holy king of Israel, around which is encamped Israelite tribes. There also seems to be, in the later part of Ezekiel, some language drawing upon this 
with this vision Ezekiel has of this glorious future temple. Ezekiel 40 and Ezekiel 48. And I just want to refer to this. I'm not going to read it. In Ezekiel 40 and in Ezekiel 48, the language of walls and courts, three, 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 and three on all sides, picture dwelling place, holiness, communion with God. Ezekiel envisioned a day where the people of God would dwell with God and use language of gates and walls and tribes, three on each side, in order to convey what I think had been established much earlier on. Here are three on each side, the holy king in the center. That's the same idea. We've thought a little bit about the Old Testament, and we made a connection with Revelation. I want to speak specifically about Jesus. You've heard me say this before when we were in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. But in the book of Numbers, this bears repeating that tabernacle language is applied to Jesus in John's gospel. In John 1.14, we are told, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, but dwelled is a very particular verb. It means to tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And what Jesus gathers around him are 12 disciples. Now, I'm not saying that every time Jesus taught, three disciples sat on each side. I mean, I doubt it at least. But it is to say, gathering something of 12, tabernacling among sinners is a way of once again evoking royal and holy connotations from the Word of God. And John's Gospel applies it to Jesus. Jesus is God tabernacling with sinners, with the tent of His flesh. And the twelve disciples constituting, if you will, a new Israel. If God is the Holy King... What are we to learn from this geographical placement? I think it's reasonable to say that the geographical positions also make a theological point. What is at the center of Israel's life? God. The tabernacle does not contain him. So lest we misconstrue anything with our words or in our minds, this is to symbolize that the heartbeat of the life of Israel is communing with God. He's not distant from them, and they've got their own encampment, and every once in a while they make a, a trek out to where the tent is. God in the tabernacle is at the heart of Israel's communal life. I think this makes a profound theological point. That the people of God, even in their very encampment, were to live with God at the center. That's what it meant to be a people who know God, who walk with God, and who fellowship with those who walk with God. We could say from Numbers chapter 2, 
you and I are to live a God-centered life. Not because this is the arrangement, but because that's the point of this. A God-centered life is not some throwaway phrase. What we're trying to say is as Christians, we've come to know the living God and now what it means to know God has redefined everything about us, about what's important to us, about what our present priorities and future hopes are, that in coming to know God, we've been called to live a God-centered life. The coming to worship God and to believe God and to receive his words. It's of such gravity that to think of God as some kind of extraneous add-on is an offense and an insult to who God is. God in all of his great worth and grandeur and splendor and beauty and transcendence and glory and honor and holiness He ought to be central. What other placement is appropriate? So these geographical positions, they do communicate a strong theological point. God is to be the center of the life of his people. So as we gather together and fellowship together and encamp together, so to speak, we do so seeking to attend to the reality of God. Who he is, what he's made known. In him, the one who is the royal, holy king, we are called to be a royal, holy people. In other words, who God is defines us. God redeemed the people. Here's what he says, Exodus 19.6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy Nation, Leviticus, Leviticus says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, thy God am holy. In other words, when we begin to attend to the reality of who God is as the holy king, the holy king of heaven and earth, we find ourselves in relation to this God called to be his representatives in the world, faithful image bearers. Kings and queens of creation under God most high. And a holy people. Holy and set apart. Being given his commands. Guided into the new covenant of Christ. The New Testament doesn't throw away that Old Testament language. Peter uses it for the church. 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, Peter says. A holy nation. Who, does the ch- who is the church according to Peter? A royal priesthood and a holy nation. The fulfillment that this pointed to. The reality of the church in Christ Jesus with the outpoured Holy Spirit is better than this. This is in the land of the shadows and types. This is in the land of those old, old covenant years before the new covenant fulfillment of Christ, our King. God is a holy King, and we've been called to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood with God at the center. Friends, this is what we were made for. We were made for this because God has delivered us, not from Egypt, 
That was true for them. He's delivered us from sin. He will raise us from the dead. We come then as those in Christ, kings and queens of creation, image bearers of Christ, of God in Christ, a holy people. Peter says, you are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he is with us. That's why he guides us from deliverance all the way to inheritance in the promised land to come. We are bound for the promised land. Who will come and go with me? 